What is going on, ladies and gentlemen? I am your host, Armand Lee, and of course, this is the Quarterly Report Podcast, episode 79. I want to thank each and every one of you all for rocking with me for another week for about an hour or so, and man, we got a hell of a show lined up for you this week. One of my best guests, Troy Halliburton from truthaboutit.net, will be joining me, and man, do we have so much to talk about. You already know the Wizards and how they've started off, especially if you're in the D.C. area. Tons of storylines, tons of topics, and potential changes that the team may need to make. We're going to get into every single imaginable topic. You're not going to want to miss that interview. Plus, four first-round picks for Jimmy Butler. Has Daryl Morey lost his mind, or is he playing for the long haul? I'll give you my thoughts on the potential trade for one of the NBA's best players. All that and so much more. But first, our number one topic this week. First quarter. The hot takes that I give out at least, they're tricky because I have to do a bit of self, you know, have a self-assessment because... I genuinely don't know what is or isn't a hot take, but then I throw some flyers out there to some of my friends or I put some some of my thoughts on, you know, Twitter or what have you. And the feedback I get and how like vociferous y'all are, like y'all be adamant, like, you know, I'm wildin' for real. My cousin also was a very good barometer on how wild my takes are, at least to like the masses. So, you know, over the past few months I've done the hot take uh segment more and more frequently because i kind of get a kick out of just seeing how off i am compared to uh a lot of at least the people who respond to me how just off i my thoughts are to i guess the norm in terms of my responses with my sports takes because i in my head it makes sense you know i'm not faking this ain't like me trying to to, to get a rise out of people when i give my takes so last week Friend of the show, a few friends of the show, Chase Hughes, Ben Standing, Chris Miles. We're going back and forth on Twitter, and I think it was Ben who asked the question. It was after the Wizards lost to the Warriors. Steph dropped 51 points in three quarters, you know, doing the Steph thing. And Ben was like, yo, I, a few years ago, I was thinking, you know, Steph, I'd take him over every guard outside of Kobe and Wade and Magic. And now I don't know if I've taken over Kobe now. And I was like, I'm already there. I already think Steph Curry is better than Kobe Bryant. And look, I know the mamas are coming for me. They came, they came and I mentioned something crazy last week. I'm not even dissing Kobe. Not dissing Kobe at all. I think Kobe's one of the better players of all time. Kobe to me, top 15, top 20. Easy. But I think Steph is better. I think Steph is better. You know, that's, I don't even think twice about that. But here's what everybody started killing me. I think Steph is a top 10 player right now. Top 10 player all time. Now, again, in my head, I don't think that's crazy. He's the only unanimous MVP. He's a two-time league MVP, three-time NBA champion. He's going to obliterate the three-point shot, three points made uh, all-time number. He has literally changed the game. Not thrown a, 
you know, a little hurdle in the game. He's completely made the game pivot. It's Steph Curry. Steph Curry is the reason why Buddy Heald is a top 10 pick. And that Trey Young, and I like Trey Young. This is a topic that we can get to later on down the line in a few episodes because it's something that I've been wanting to talk about. But, you know, Luka Doncic, for me, is the real deal. And I'm not going to do the Luka versus Trey thing that goes on the on the timeline anytime one of them are playing. I like both of them. I think both of them are exciting. I'm, I hope both of them succeed. I think Luka Doncic is the best player that's going to come out of this upcoming draft. Trey Young gets taken number three or is traded they traded to get him atlanta partly because they envision him being something like steph curry you know just go down the line look recently trey burke lottery pick undersized guards who can't defend you know who aren't strong and don't have crazy athleticism outside of Allen iverson who was a freak of nature they just never went high in the draft. And now you're seeing multiple guys like that come out the draft every single year. And that is not a coincidence, in my, in my opinion, that it all happens after Steph Curry blew up. You have to change the way you guard that team. You have to, and we're going to talk about this in quarter number two. Everybody's falling head over heels in love with the three-point shot, even at their own, even to their own detriment because of Steph Curry. So that's my hot take. And I don't even know how hot it is. Like, I honestly thought that that was like a regular thing. Not just that Steph is better than Kobe, but Steph is a top 10 player right now. But the feedback I got from y'all, Lord have mercy. Y'all would have thought I had a nose. I had three noses on my face the way y'all was looking at me crazy. You know what I'm saying? I mean, think about it. Seriously. From an offensive standpoint, who's changed the game more? Kareem, who should be in everybody's top five. Shaq, who should be in everybody's top ten. Wilt, who should be in everybody's top five or top ten at least. Those are the guys who have changed the game the way Steph Curry. Now, there have been guys who have who have made things different and who have changed the way basketball is played. I'm not saying that Steph Curry is one of three or four players. But to change it the way he has, Okay. We're not that long ago where every single analyst would get on television and be like, jump shooting teams can't win championships. I'm sorry. They just won three of the last four. <laughs> think of, like, think about how fast things have changed in this kind of era of Steph, right? The Lakers were closing games with three seven-footers. Three. Pau Gasol. Andrew Bynum, Lamar Odom. That's how they closed. That's how they finished games. That was their quote-unquote death lineup, right? Now, to their credit, Miami Heat went small first. You know, they had Bosh at the five. But Chris Bosh is 6'11". LeBron James was their power forward, but LeBron James is 6'8", 6'9". Like people, people have always said LeBron is kind of like Karl Malone from a size perspective. Karl Malone is one of the greatest power forwards of all time. So they went small, but not necessarily in stature, but in skill, right? Chris Bosh is not your typical center because he can shoot. He's not he's not nearly as like just big, like from a size standpoint, from as like a Shaq or Alonzo Mourning or you know 
uh, even a Pau Gasol, but he's skilled. So he would stretch the floor, but from a from just a height perspective, Miami going small wasn't really going small. You know what I mean? LeBron James is still the size of a power forward. Chris Bosh is still the height of a center. And whether it was Shane Batty or Mike Miller, those guys are small forwards anyway. So that was more an idea than actual application. And remember, Miami still had Birdman, so they weren't really going small. Then the Spurs, they had Tiago Splitter and Tim Duncan in their starting lineup. So we aren't that far removed from two seven-footers or multiple big men on the floor at the same time. And then, boom, Steph comes. And not really Steph comes. Mark Jackson got out of there. And they just completely embraced their team and their roster, con you know, how their roster was constructed. And again, I'm going to dive deeper into this in our second quarter. But Steph changed everything. He changed everything. So Cleveland had Mozgolf and, you know, they had Tristan Thompson, obviously. And then, boom, it was like, okay, we, we can't do this anymore. So centers just came, like, unless you are an elite, elite big man, Rudy Gobert, Anthony Davis, Nikola Jokic, and, and, and honestly, Jokic and Anthony Davis are, aren't like Gobert. Gobert is still a traditional type of big with the, uh, with the added athleticism. You know, he doesn't run post plays. But there are not that many bigs like Gobert. Maybe Andre Drummond and Steven Adams. Those are like the last remaining quality big men like that. And people in D.C. obviously hope the White still can be one. But the game is different now, and it, you can literally pinpoint it straight to Steph Curry. My guy Chase was telling me, oh, well, you know, their Dirk was a big man who shot threes. He changed the game. But, you know, Dirk wasn't the first big man to shoot threes. Sam Perkins, when I was a kid, was shooting threes as a center. You know? Rasheed Wallace, during Dirk's prime, like, at the same time, was shooting threes. Now, I'm not saying she is as good as Dirk, but you get what I'm saying. So Dirk didn't change the game in terms of big men who shoot big men who shoot threes. Big men have always shot threes. Just Dirk made it more popular to do so. You know, he also told me, you know, Kevin Durant, a seven-footer who can put the ball on the floor. But what I'm saying is, how many seven-footers put the ball on the floor? Kevin Durant is literally a unicorn. They're not guys. They're seven-footers who shoot threes. But we've already done that. Like Austin Crozier was another big man who shot threes. This is something that's been going on for decades now. But in terms of seven-footers who can create like Durant, can bring the ball up the floor, they're not guys like that. Porzingis can't do that. Embiid doesn't do that. You know, you can shoot. That doesn't necessarily mean you can run the offense and you can create off the dribble. And like that, Durant is a one-of-one one in that regard. You're not drafting Myers Leonard so he can bring the ball up the floor like Kevin Durant. That's not happening. You know, Jakob Pertle, he's not doing You know what I'm saying? Like, there are seven-footers who can shoot in our skill, but they're not skilled like Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant is not changing the game in that regard because no one can do it. No one can do what Steph does, but everybody still tries to. That's the crazy thing. Steph is unbelievable at shooting. Klay Thompson just scored... 50-some-odd points and three-quarters as well. 14 three-pointers. Broke Steph Curry's record. 
And Clay's not as as good of a shooter as Steph is. You're not going to get anyone as good as Clay in this league now. Ex you know, let alone Steph. And everyone is trying to do it. When you add that to what God knows what he's going to do to the all-time scoring record. I don't think anybody's catching Kareem, even LeBron. But I think Steph, if Steph can stay healthy, he's got a much greater chance of doing it than LeBron because he's doing it by threes. You just do the math. He's getting extra. He's getting the extra point by doing it. So he's going to shatter the three-point record. He's going to rapidly climb the all-time scoring record. He's already a two-time league MVP, already a three-time NBA champion, and he literally could start ringing, just piling up the rings, piling up the rings. And y'all don't think he's top ten now, y'all? There are people who are saying he can't get top ten. He maybe could get top ten. And I'm thinking, what's y'all religion? Because clearly we 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 looking at stuff, we observing and watching and doing the math in our heads. Completely different. Completely different. So I got to know where y'all worship at. Where numbers and, and logic is completely different than mine. Because to me, Steph being top 10 isn't a hot take. That's just common sense. But look, I know y'all disagree on that. So let me know. Let me know why I'm wrong. Because I know a lot of y'all, the little mambas out there, all y'all Kobe stands. I know a lot of y'all think I'm wrong. But don't just say I'm crazy. Tell me why. Tweet at me at quarterly show, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E -E -E show, or email me. Let me know why Steph Curry isn't a top 10 player already and why I'm crazy. Why is that a hot take for me to think it? Because I think that's just regular. I think that's normal. Shout out to Cam, regular degular. You feel me? I think that's just the way it is. I don't know why people fight that so much, but whatever. We can get into that later on, too. Email me at quarterlyreport at gmail.com. Again, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E, -E -E, report at gmail.com. But the Steph topic and the Warriors topic is so great that I'm going to go back to back, kind of breaking it from a macro level now. And that's what we're going to talk about for our second topic this week. Second so I just went through one of the many reasons why I think Steph Curry is not just better than Kobe Bryant, but he's an all-time top 10 player. And one of the main reasons why is the legacy argument. Because when it's all said and done, I mean, you don't even have to wait. Steph Curry has changed the game of basketball, professional basketball, but basketball throughout the stages, throughout the levels. Everyone wants to shoot threes now. Everyone. Even when we all know you shouldn't. Jan Mahimi all offseason was talking about how he was going to add the three-point shot to his game. And during the preseason and practice and training camp, people were like, hey, man, Giannis, Giannis he can make them. The first three times I've seen Jan Mahini take his three-point shot this season, the first two of them, he hit the side of the backboard. There is a reason why he shouldn't shoot three-pointers. Dwight Howard talked about how he wanted to add the three-point shot to his repertoire. Dwight Howard... I don't know if he's ever shot 60% from the free throw line. So why on earth would anyone think he should shoot three-pointers? So the beauty in what Steph has done is that, wow, man, the game is fun. He has added space, the creativity. I mean, there's nothing more exciting than seeing he or Clay or anybody just go off from the three-point line. I still remember the shrug game. Everybody does a shrug now. 
you know, after they hit two three-pointers in a row. I actually remember seeing the ver- the, the the actual Cheryl game where Jordan hit a few threes and he looked over the Magic and was like, yo, because Jordan wasn't a three-point shooter, right? Now threes come in bunches, but should they, right? That's where I want to kind of sit at for this topic because – Everyone gets caught up in analytics, the term analytics. And I've talked about this in the past, but it's just so annoying because it continues to happen. Analytics, if that word, if that term psychs you out or it bothers you, chill. It just means data, information, right? Don't get psyched out. Don't get disgusted and bothered just by people say analytics. But on the flip side, Coaches and teams and players, they can't just go overboard just hearing analytics and just instantly thinking three-point shooting. I live in D.C. or right outside D.C. Scott Brooks, the head coach of the Washington Wizards, for those of you who are not familiar, he talks about, you know, I remember when he was coaching Oklahoma City, and I was like, yo, this guy's just not really a good head coach. It was a lack of creativity for the team when you had three amazing basketball. I mean, really, you had four Gustavo Cephalosha was in his prime. He was he was an amazing defensive player. And he also had a very good 3-3, three 3-and-D, three, three and excuse me, uh, offensive-slash-defensive arsenal. That was part of his game. And they went to one final. Now, I will admit, coaching Russell Westbrook probably is not the easiest thing. Coaching any of those three, Harden, Westbrook, or Durant, probably isn't the easiest thing to do. And they weren't there for that long. We know about uh, Sam Presti, his awful decision to trade James Harden. But what have you? I wasn't impressed with Scott Brooks as a head coach. Now Everyone wanted to give him credit for James Harden and Russell Westbrook and Kevin Durant being an amazing player. Or being amazing players, I should say. I, crazy me, tend to give credit to the actual players. Not saying that Scott Brooks didn't help in some regard, right? But it's easy, it's easier to coach players who are special than it is otherwise, right? So he may have suggested to Kevin Durant, hey, put your elbow in when you shoot a little bit more. But I have a hard time believing that Kevin Durant wasn't going to be a great shooter no matter who his head coach was. Same with Harden. In fact, Harden improved. Westbrook, there were many people would say that what Brooks tried to reel in Westbrook. Westbrook, again, I'm not saying coaching him is the easiest thing because he's just on the go, always on accelerate. And that could be tiring, let alone frustrating, physically, emotionally, the whole nine. But I'm not giving him credit for turning those three players into MVPs. Nah, that's not, no. Not at all. But he comes, he, you know, he gets fired, and he takes a year off. And when he gets hired in D.C., he's like, you know, I went to the MIT Sloan Conference, and I studied analytics, and I'm thinking to myself, okay, off rip. I don't even like how that sounds. Just because you go to a conference, does it then mean that, like, again, it just means data. It just means information. This stuff shouldn't be that hard. Look at Milwaukee. Milwaukee, and again, it's super early in the season. Who knows what can happen? Who knows if any of this is is sustainable? But Milwaukee 
has done a complete 180. And there was a quote, I'm not, I'm paraphrasing because I don't have it right in front of me. But Giannis, it was a game they were playing against the Knicks, my, my sad Knicks. And then in the third quarter, New York got hot and we were down by a lot of points, but we cut it to like eight or so. Still not, you know, it's still multiple possession game, but we made it close. But we made it close by shooting long twos. And Giannis basically was like, this is the way we're playing. We will give up the long twos, but we will not give up threes. And we will not give up lay-ins. And we will shoot threes. And we won't make them all. And the reporter was like, well, you know, they went on this run and boom, boom, boom. And Giannis was like, did they win? And of course they didn't because they're the Knicks. But the point is, Giannis has bought in. When your star player buys into a philosophy, it's just so much easier, in my opinion, to then get everybody to go. But so many star players hear analytics and they just think, okay, well, I got to shoot threes now. And that's not what it is. It's not. Analytics will tell you, obviously, what we all know. A three-point shot is more valuable than a two-point shot unless you're at the rim. That, that's not crazy. That's not some type of out-the-box thinking. That's logic. You know? I hear Scott Brooks and other coaches, but I'm talking about Brooks specifically because I'm living in this area. And he's like, I want all, all these guys to shoot more threes. And to me, I hear that. And I'm like, okay, well, then you don't subscribe to the analytics then. Otto Porter should shoot a lot of threes. No doubt. Bradley Bill should shoot a lot of threes. Absolutely. If John Wall shoots a three and the ball moves around the floor and he catches it set with his feet set, shoulder square. Boom, shoot the three. John Wall should not be shooting pull-up threes. He just shouldn't. That's not, that's not analytics. The data suggests that John is much better when he probes the defense. And when he can, he can make the three-point shot when he's when his feet when his feet are set and his shoulders are squared. But he shouldn't be shooting the threes that 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 Bill shoots or that Steph or Clay shoots because he's not a great shooter. And that's okay. That's not a knock on John. John is an amazing basketball player. But part of this advanced statistic revolution, if you want to call it that, because I don't think that we're there yet, but a lot of it is understanding what you have. One of the beautiful things about the Golden State Warriors is that they went left when the entire league was going right. I just broke it down in the first quarter. The Lakers were winning multiple championships with three big men. The Oklahoma City Thunder traded for Kendrick Perkins, and I've talked about this in the past. A lot of people think it was a binary choice between James Harden and Serge Ibaka, and the Thunder went with Ibaka. The issue with what the Thunder did is they traded for Kendrick Perkins, then gave him a contract extension when they didn't have to, when they shouldn't have. And the money that they had devoted to Perkins and did not allow them to have money to sign both Ibaka and Harden, which they would have been able to do. But think about that. We're not that far removed from the Thunder trading for Kendrick Perkins because he's a big body. Chris Anderson, Birdman in Miami, Tiago Splitter in San Antonio, the teams who are winning championships. The Indiana Pacers went to back-to-back -back conference championships with Roy Hibbert. We are not that far removed from big men dominating this game. 
the Warriors went left. They realized we don't have that. But what we do have are two amazing shooters who can stretch the floor. And we have an undersized power forward, if you will, who can guard big men. But they can't guard him because he can bring the ball up the floor. So they changed the game. They, they did it because they utilized the three-point shot. But the only reason they were able to utilize the three-point shot is because they had the personnel to do so. We are now in a day and age where every team is trying to beat the Warriors in the way the Warriors want to play. You are allowing the Warriors to set the rules of engagement and set established home court and then decide, okay, I'm going to beat you that way. Yes. The data, the advanced statistics, the analytics, if you will, suggest the three-point shot is more valuable than the two, especially the long two. But that doesn't mean everybody needs to shoot threes. Because if you do that, you are then falling in the trap of the Warriors. Like, that has to make sense to everyone, right? We saw it last year in the conference championship. Houston did everything in their power to beat the Warriors all season long. And they went complete to the extreme. Three-point happy. Shot so many three-pointers. Broke records the whole nine. And what happened in game six and seven, especially game seven? They had home court on their floor. And they couldn't win because they had, they just went cold from the three-point line. They designed a roster to beat Golden State at Golden State's game. But of course, no one on their team can shoot like Steph Curry and Klay Thompson. And eventually, everybody couldn't make shots, including the league MVP. That's just how it is. Rewind, though, to when Kevin Durant was playing with the Thunder. The Thunder weren't this great three-point shooting team. And they should have beaten the Warriors. You can win in the NBA without devoting complete 100% to this three-point shooting barrage. You have to understand what your team has. And then work the system to your advantage. You're not going to beat the Warriors shooting threes because, again, they've got the best two at it. And that doesn't even include Kevin Durant, who may be the best shooter ever. Or not the best shooter ever, but the best shooter at that size without question ever. Imagine that. Imagine trying to get in the home run derby with Babe Ruth. Right? You're playing their game. You have let them establish the rules and you are going to go into their arena and try to beat them at their game of their choosing. Good luck. You wouldn't do that in any other scenario. Floyd Mayweather is not going to try to get in a knockout competition with Mike Tyson. It's not happening. You got to establish what you do well. You have to know your personnel. You have to have your vision for the team you want to play. When the Baltimore Ravens won their two Super Bowls, they weren't trying to be the New England Patriots and throw, you know, score 500 points. They knew what they had to do. Make the game as short as possible with the running game and play hellacious defense. Boom. And not, and not turn the ball over. Understand what your team can do. Understand your personnel. So when I see John Wall shoot five three-pointers a game, I'm thinking, well, what the hell? That's not, that's not analytics-driven. That's not data-driven. 
You trying to cut corners. You trying to cheat. When I hear Andre Drummond wants to shoot three-pointers, I'm like, okay, give it a try, but don't take too many three-point shots. That's not part of your game. You need to be rim running, defending the rim on the opposite side. And you need to be working on your free throw shot. It's one of the reasons why I'm not mad at Ben Simmons for not shooting threes. He can't make them. He needs to make his free throws. But why waste possession shooting shots that he can't make? Just because analytics. No, analytics will not tell you to do that. If you can't make it, don't shoot it. It's a waste of a possession. If you have guys who can make it, don't shoot 19-foot jump shots. It's basic math. If you shoot a 20-footer and you're, make, and you're shooting it at 39%, that's, that's an ugly number. If you take a step back and shoot a three-point shot at 39%, you're among the, the league's best. You're considered elite at it. You understand? That is understanding your personnel, understanding the numbers, taking a deep dive. That's part of analytics, knowing the numbers, knowing the rate, knowing the likelihood, the frequency, and what you can make. Everybody doesn't have three-point range, and that's not a knock. Y'all remember a few years ago, I talked about the Lakers several times when Mike D'Antoni coached the Lakers, and he was hell-bent on making Pau Gasol a three-point shooter. And Pau Gasol would make 17- to 18-foot jump shots easy. He was just amazing at him but he could not knock down threes he tried and tried and mike d'antoni had him shooting corner threes he had him shooting straight ahead it didn't matter powell just could not make him and we all thought he was washed and then the very next season he goes to chicago and has two of his better years he was an all nba player some guys just can't shoot threes and that's okay it is perfectly fine everybody does not have range but guys like Bradley Beal, Chris Middleton, Tim Hardaway Jr., guys who can, don't shoot 20-foot shots when if you take a half a step back, you'll get an extra point. Because if, you take a, if you're a 40% shooter from 20, you're getting two points, that's not a good number. If you're a 40% shooter from 21 and whatever it is, you get the extra point from three, you're amazing. That's part of analytics. That's part of the advanced statistics, knowing the percentages, understanding the likelihood of a positive result, understanding your personnel. If you try to beat the Warriors at the Warriors game, you're making it even harder. Remember the grit and grind Grizzlies? They went six games against the Warriors, even with Mike Conley being injured. They didn't play the Warriors style, but they gave them a hell of a series. One of the more competitive series the Warriors have ever played. And they were able to do so because they knew we can't shoot threes with the Warriors, but we won't try. If they're going to beat us, it's going to be a slugfest. They're going to have to earn that joint. And that's what the Warriors did. You tipped the cap. They were the better team. But the Grizzlies presented a much tougher challenge for the Warriors than damn near everybody else, with the exception of the Thunder and the Rockets and obviously the Cavaliers who won, those are three teams. And the Grizzlies didn't have a LeBron. The Grizzlies didn't have a James Harden or a Chris Paul or a Kevin Durant or a Russell Westbrook. But they went just as hard against that Warriors team as anyone else. 
we, like we should understand we should be looking at that that team built that way without a star or a special player was able to give this warriors club a run how when every other team is talking about shooting threes and doing all this because of analytics no no no, no. don't go against the grain because that's the that's the cool thing that's the trendy thing nah know your role man that's not to be dismissive know what you can do know what you can't do know what you're good at know what you're not good at if you know you're not good at something don't keep on trying at that during the game you can practice that's what the offseason is for but if i know you can't make a left-handed hook shot you better not be taking left-handed hook shots in the playoffs you understand what i'm saying understand your strengths Know your weaknesses so you don't fall victim to them. Everybody's caught off on analytics and three-point shots when it's really just a lazy understanding of what it means. Because if you honestly think you're against analytics and you don't like what analytics is doing, is doing to the game of basketball, essentially what you're saying is, I don't like information. And if, if I ever meet someone who doesn't want to be informed, who doesn't want to have data, who does not want facts as an argument, as a, as a backbone, a baseline for your way of thinking, I don't need you around me at all. All right, guys, you heard the horn, man. I, I could go on that topic for forever. You got the whole league trying to beat the Warriors at the Warriors game and upset that the Warriors keep winning. Like, like what, you, what, what you talking about? <laughs> man, I need, somebody need to give me a team. I'm serious, man, bro. When this show pops off for real, slim. I'm going to own me a team. And y'all going to hear it. Y'all going to find out. I'm like, damn, that boy Armand know what the hell he talking about. you damn right I do. Anyway, let me keep moving because I stay on this all, all show. Y'all heard the horn. It means halftime is here. But before we get to halftime, we got some stoppage time uh, questions to get to. Again, stoppage time. We have it. From time to time on the show, if I get any tweets or questions, I like to respond to you all on this uh, platform during the show to interact with you all because the show is as good as you guys want it to be, man. So the more you guys email me or tweet me, the better the show will be because I, I love interacting with you all. I love to, to read your emails. Uh, and if you guys want me to talk about a certain topic, this is the opportunity to get me to do so. So we got two questions this week uh, or topics this week. The first one coming from Jock from uh, Long Island. Jock, um, shout out to Long Island, shout out to New York. What's happening, y'all? Uh, and Jock says, why won't analysts say Eli Manning is washed during the telecast? So again, Jock, thank you for your question. Uh, man, I'm with you. It's crazy to me to see how people keep the kid go gloves on for Eli. Like It's like people are so obsessed with Odell Beckham. And they're so obsessed with drafting Saquon Barkley number two that they missed the forest for the trees. You know, it's clear Eli Manning is not a good football player anymore. It's clear. I get that he won a Super Bowl. I get that he won two Super Bowls and has two Super Bowl MVPs and is part of the 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 golden family of football. But we got to call a spade a spade, man. Eli Manning's not good. And Eli Manning is the main reason why the Giants are not good. He just isn't. The, he, look, he has a bad offensive line. Don't get me wrong. He's not the only player who has a bad offensive line. Russell Wilson has a bad offensive line. 
he doesn't get anywhere near the 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 care the careful handling that the analysis the analysts all the quote unquote experts you watch any game that Eli Manning is playing and they they make sure they are not too harsh too critical on Eli right Eli will miss a throw a throw in the red zone Odell Beckham running wide to the right just make it just lob the pass he'll make it and they blame every everything under the sun under other than Eli just not playing well and it's annoying and I get it that he's a Super Bowl winning quarterback but there are other Super Bowl winning quarterbacks who get criticized Joe Flacco gets criticized you know why what makes Eli so special and the reason why people aren't and this is a coming and this is in New York they kill everybody in New York and the fact that they didn't rip Eli last year is the reason why y'all stuck with them for another year but luckily it's almost over just ride this year out and make sure you guys don't make the same mistake again so Jock thank you for that question number two uh, this is coming from Brittany in Fort Washington, look down around my way. So shout out to Brittany. Her question to me is scariest movie I've ever seen. Um, you guys are listening to this podcast. I guess it'll be out November 1st. So just the day after uh, Halloween. So that's probably why she's asking me this question. I'm not really, honestly, I don't really get too scared at movies anymore. Uh, I know everybody keeps on telling me to watch on Netflix, The House on Haunting Hill or something like, I think that's the name of the show. So I got to check that out. I don't really scare easily, but when I was a kid, slim. This question is always going to be for me, Candyman. That that joint messed me up for real, bro. Like, I, I don't know when. We saw it in the theater. I saw it with my aunt and my sister. I'll never forget it. So I'm like seven, eight years old. Bomb. We go to the movies, go see Candyman. So, you know, like I said, I didn't scare easily that much. Um, actually, that's not true. When I was a kid... I got scared at the in the thriller when Michael Jackson turned his head to the camera. And he had the yellow eyes. I could watch that whole video, but that very end threw me off. I don't know what it was when I was a kid. Little little quirky stuff would make me scared, Joe. But for whatever reason, I thought I was good to go see Candyman because when I was a kid, Child's Play was funny to me. Freddy Krueger was funny to me. Jason, Michael Myers, none of that stuff scared me as a kid, right? It was like little weird stuff that would scare me. I don't know, man. I've been weird my whole life. Anyway, so we go to. The movie theaters, like I said, I'm seven, eight years old. I want my aunt and my sister, and they tell me, yo, if you get scared, just let us know we will leave, right? But they say that because, again, I'm a kid. I'm watching Aliens. I'm watching Child's Play. That stuff didn't bother me. Bong. We in the movie, watched it like, probably like the first 20 minutes of that movie, and I'm good. And then there's one scene that happened in that joint. I had to put my head down on my sister's lap. I didn't put my head up for the rest of the movie. I still haven't seen Candyman to this date. I can remember hearing stuff that went on because, like, I'm I'm just I cover my eyes and I'm asking my sister and my aunt, "Yo, can we go?" Y'all told me if I didn't want to watch, we would leave. Man, my black ass was in that joint the whole time. They ain't, <laughs> they ain't leave, so I kept my head down. My sister slept the whole movie, and I still to this day have not seen Candyman. So easily the scariest movie I have seen in my life is. A seven, eight-year-old Armand Lee watching uh, Candyman. So, Brittany, great question. Thank you for the questions, Jock and Brittany, and everyone else who tweets at the show and emails me. All right, guys, so that was stoppage time. We're going to move on now to halftime. And halftime this week, man, it was a life lesson 
that we all got to learn this week. You know, from time to time, I think we all have these moments where we try to fight the L. The L will happen to everybody. The L falls in all of our laps multiple times in our life, multiple times a year. And most of us, we know, man, I just got to eat this joint, but we're going to keep it moving. But from time to time, we all get to the point where we think that we can fight the L. The L is undefeated. Like Father Time, you don't beat the L. The L comes to us all. We just got to take it from time to time. It's cool. It'll be okay. But this week, we got another lesson of someone who fought to try not to take the L. And it only made matters worse. Take a listen. This is another example of what happens when you fail to take the L, 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 L. Let's rewind to February 2018, NBA All-Star Weekend, where the now infamous national anthem takes place. That star spangled Instead of just taking the L, Fergie's ex-husband, Josh Dumal, decides to dig up this old wound and make matters worse. The thing that made me upset was that she was taking a lot of uh, really cruel sort of comments. People, yeah. were, people were really trolling. I was pissed off at Draymond Green, first of all. I think he owed her an apology. I thought he was kind of a prick. Naturally, the Warriors responded. forgetting the embarrassment that was Fergie's national anthem. The entire weekend, everyone on social media has been laughing at not only Fergie, but Josh Duma. This is another example of why everyone needs to remember to take the L, 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 L. It's the easiest thing in life, young. Everybody catches one. Everybody catches multiple L's. You just got to take that joint, eat it, and just let it ride out. I don't even know this dude's name, Josh Dumel. Dumel, I, I, I don't know if I'm saying it right. I don't know who he is. Never heard of him before Friday or whatever night it was. You know what I'm saying? And I'm just like, bro, why are you even thinking about this? You know? And, I, and, and the fact that he got mad at Draymond, Slim, Everybody thought that joint was trash. Everybody. If you want to get mad at Draymond, you got to get mad at LeBron. You got to get mad at Chris Rock. Chance, the rapper. You know what I'm saying? You got to get mad at Steph. You got to get mad at Jimmy Kimmel. Everybody who was there knew that that joint was trash. For those of you who are unaware, right? Because obviously this is a podcast. This is just an audio medium. You know, go on YouTube. Google it. For those of you who are unaware, you can, you can look at all of it. You know what I mean? Fergie National Anthem. Bong. You can check it out, right? Then 
Google, you know, Warriors Fergie remix. And you can see just how funny every, it was so absurd. But for Fergie, because she's kind of an innocent bystander on this, because she wasn't checking for this. You know, she tried to, you know, Pappas forgot about it. Boom, she's moving on, whatever, whatever. Now it kind of just popped back up because of her ex. If she's smart, holler at whomever remixed that junk, give them some bread on the low, and then put a song out to it. You know, because that thing rock. You know, flip the, flip the L. You have all these options. Everybody gets an L. Everybody does. It happens all the time. But you have options. You catch an L, flip that joint to a positive. And maybe she can, but Slim, if she thought she was going to live that down, oh, no, no, no. Her ex came out of the woodwork to make sure we all caught some more laughs because we ain't never forgetting that now. I don't know what the hell was wrong with him. Josh Dumal. Like, you going to check the Warriors? Slim, get out of here. Like, what you doing? Wash your face. All right. Anyway, that was halftime, a very funny halftime, if I do say so myself. But we still got two quarters left, and we got so much more to discuss regarding the National Basketball Association, specifically the local team, at least for me, the Washington Wizards. So who better to talk to about the Wizards than our Wizards correspondent, if you will, my guy, Troy Halliburton. He is a frequent guest on the show. You can find his work at truthaboutit.net along with other outlets covering the NBA. My guy, Troy Halliburton. Troy, thanks for joining me this week on the Quarterly Report. Uh, man, I appreciate you for having me. Um, uh, when, when, when you sent the message out for me to come on, it, it put a smile on my face. So I'm very happy to be here. Make sure you follow Troy on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton. Again, at Troy Hallibur on Twitter. Really dope follow all things NBA, but even more stuff. We're going to get to things outside of the basketball world later in this interview. But, of course, Troy, we got to start with the home team. Man, the season just started. It's so early, but it feels like it's DEFCOM. Now, maybe not DEFCOM 3 yet, but it's, it's, we're getting close. So my first question to you is really simple, man. What the hell is going on with the Wizards? Um, I, honestly, there, everything is everything is going on with the Wizards. Everything that can go wrong is right. going wrong with this team right now, and, and and that's the thing that's kind of probably the most frustrating: the fact that it's not just one single you know thing that that people can point to and say, oh man, well if they show up the rebound, then it'll get better. Well, no, because they're you know they're, they're not playing well defensively. They're getting beat back almost every possession you know uh, offensively you know but we still we're still talking about the distribution of the shots right. uh, which the John Wall isn't really hitting uh, his jump shots like like like, like he was in, in the past two seasons and you know they, they, they're really not it looks like a lot of isolation ball and they're not really getting everybody involved so it, it looks like more of the same uh, from from, from, from the, some of the same issues that the team has been having over the last couple of seasons so, I mean, everything is wrong right now, man. <laughs> it's crazy, man, because, look, you're with the team. You cover the team. You're with them for every home game. So you have relationships with many of these players. For me, on the outside looking in, and I love John. I've rolled for John from the from the rip. He's one of my favorite players. But it just feels like from the outside looking in that there's just something wrong chemistry-wise. I don't want to make – this, this rush to judgment that these guys don't like each other or whatever the case may be because again I don't know but it just feels like again from the outside looking in that the chemistry is all off uh, is that 
out of bounds. Is that unfair, or do you think that's true? No, it's not too much at all because uh, the the Wizards players themselves have kind of you know put this narrative out there with some of their comments uh, recently on the on that on that West Coast road trip. So after the game in Sacramento, uh, I believe it was uh, Fred Katz from the Athletic. He's new on the beat, but he's already hitting the ground running. He, you know, he he had a lot of different quotes from you know John Wall, Bradley Bill, and Marquise Morris specifically, seemingly calling out unnamed teammates for you know looking for their own shots and worrying about the wrong things. And honestly, I had I kind of have a problem with that from those three players because right. that's not really a good example of what leadership is supposed to be. You know, a, a good leader will first of all stand in the mirror and point to, you know, your own faults first before you start pointing out what anybody else is doing. And so when we start with Marquise Morris, you know, right. the guy, I mean, the man missed a, a plain and simple box out in the first game of the season that literally cost him a basketball game. Right. And he didn't stand up in the locker room and say, oh, it's my fault, I messed up, put it on me. You know, he kind of deflected and, and, you know, played it off. But if you a real leader, you calling out unnamed people right now. But right. when you quit the, the game, all he had to do was put his butt on Kelly Olenek and they win that basketball game. Right. And, and he, he didn't say anything about it. You know, John Wall hasn't been playing well, but, you know, they, I, I think that there's, you know, I, I think that deductive reasoning, we're talking about Otto Porter here, or what they're talking about Otto Porter here. And, and as John Wall, as a leader, he has to do a better job of, of making sure that, you know, Otto's getting involved. I know he's tired of talking about it, but that's the job as the point guard. Right. So, I mean, I, I think this is a, a, an indictment of their leadership, first and foremost. Yeah, I, I agree 100%. Once again, guys, I'm joined by a friend of the program, Troy Halliburton. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton, writer for truthaboutit.net, covers the Wizards, and obviously that's what we're talking about right now. Um, you know, as fans, and no matter how you cut it, we're all fans to some degree of basketball. Many of us are fans of certain teams. And as a Knicks fan, man, I understand the struggle. You know, my team has been awful the majority of my adult life, so I get you know, always trying to see the positive, always trying to see the light at the end of the tunnel, if you will. But that comes kind of at a cost because you can always try to talk yourself into something that only leads to despair. And I feel like a lot of the people I'm cool with who love the Wizards and who follow the Wizards, they're doing it in terms of Dwight. Like they're propping almost Dwight Howard up to be the savior. And I think that's just a that's a dangerous proposition. Um, how do you feel about Dwight Howard and his return? Because, yes, he can help fix some of the issues, but I don't know if he's the savior that many people hope that he is. I, I'm right there with you 100%. I mean, if anybody is expecting Dwight to come in and save the team, I mean, you might as well jump off the ship right now. <laughs> but uh, I think what, what Dwight will do if, if 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 this is a ship and we have you know uh, we we got some we got some uh, leaks on the side, he could right. come in and help plug that and keep and keep the thing going afloat for a little while until 
until they're able to, you know, kind of just fix the other problems that they have going on. I mean, a big, a major problem that the team has is that, you know, they are kind of terrible at rebounding right now. You right. know, they're dead last at, in total rebounds. They're giving up 55 rebounds per game, and they're also giving up 15 offensive rebounds per game, and they're also giving up the most second-chance points in the entire NBA. So, I mean, as far as that one particular problem, Dwight yeah. will be able to come in and help solve that. But as far as everything else goes, I mean, that's that's just a Band-Aid on, on you know, a lot of deep wounds that, that, that the Wizards uh, faithful need to, you know, deeply consider looking at. Once again, guys, I'm joined by a friend of the program, Troy Halliburton. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton. He is a contributor to truthaboutit.net and covers the NBA for other outlets as well. And we're still talking about the Washington Wizards. And, you know, when you watch the Wizards, and this is, what, year six, year seven of the John Wall, Bradley Bill era, and it's clear, man, when you look around the league, teams have shelf lives. And it's, it's tough because when you look at John, John is one of the best players in this league. I couldn't have been more wrong about Bradley Bill. Bradley Bill seemingly gets better every time you look at him uh, year to year. I'm an auto guy, as everybody who listens to this show knows, but, you know, he's struggling this season. There's no way to sugarcoat it, but he obviously has talent, and Kelly Oubre is developing every time we see him each game this season. But for whatever reason, it's just not adding up. It's like the, the cliche, the sum of the parts just aren't adding up. And when you look at teams like Toronto, who had a shelf life, and Masai Ujiri decided to make a huge change this offseason for Kawhi Leonard, DeMar DeRozan is playing very well this season, but the Rock Toronto has gotten significantly better. They're now a legit championship contender. Do you think it's time to break this up? Maybe not a full rebuild or blow it up completely, but to shift things around. Or do you think that, you know what, it's still early. We got to wait and see how this season plays out. Well, I, um, I agree with a lot of the things that you were saying. And I think that, you know, just as you mentioned with Toronto, at some point, you know, it becomes the, the, a point where the team has to make a change, if not just for the, the sake of making a change, just to switch it up. And, you know, and that's not the point to blame at right. any one particular player, but it's just, as, a, as, as you said, the sum of the parts as a collective, they haven't been able to, to reach the goal that everybody wants. And honestly, there really isn't a path that any logical person can take and see that they can get over that hump. So I think the first logical step would be to try to move Otto Porter. Right. And it's not because, you know, Otto has been struggling, because I still believe I find the great value in having a 6'8 wing player who could defend multiple positions, who's a yeah. deadly knockdown shooter, you know, who can, you know, post up smaller players. Like, there's so many positive things that Otto Porter could do. But for some reason, this organization has right. decided that he's really a third option, you know, a role player option, as opposed to being a third superstar. Right. And as long as they treat him as a role player, he can never be more than that. Right. So, and, and, and I don't, I don't see a way where they're going to treat him like he is, a, 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 you know, and a Jimmy Butler or a Paul right. George, and let him take 17, 18 shots a game. You know, they, they, they're going to treat him as a role player. So that's all he'll be. So my, at this point, you might as well move him. You're right. And 
this kind of bleeds into my next question. Um, you know, I, I tweeted this out after the Kings game Friday night, and it feels like this has happened now a handful of times in just the last two seasons where there's a tough loss by the Wizards, explosive post-game comments, but there's not a outlet to really talk about it or dive into it for basketball slash Wizards fans. The radio, you know, they very rarely talk about the Wizards or the NBA, and when they do, you understand why. And then, you know, Sunday slash Monday, it's all about the football team. It's, to me, someone who who's, whose favorite sport is the NBA and is someone who understands the Wizards had the second highest jump in terms of television ratings for the entire league last year. There is an audience for it, but it's incredibly frustrating when you see the lack of, I don't know, coverage from a large scale. You know, the blogs and the writers, you guys do a hell of a job. Unfortunately, though, the market's getting cornered. You know, the sports capital friend of the program, Ben Stanek, his, him and his guys, they, they shut down. So there, there are not that many places to go for in-depth Wizards coverage. As someone who is in it and is providing that type of coverage, how do you assess, I guess, the 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 marketplace, the area, and how the Wizards are covered for this area in this town? I'd say uh, the, the the current state of Wizards coverage is is very much lacking because I mean you know we're still in the height of football season. And, you know, the Redskins just so happen to be really good this year. So, you know, people care even less about right. you know, anything that's going on uh, that, that that doesn't have to do with the Redskins. But, I, I mean, I would say that there is a good contingent of people who come down and cover the Wizards. Um, but the only thing is the fact that, you know, there's reporting that goes on at that level where, you know, we're we we're at the games. We talk to the players in the locker room and we kind of disseminate the information out, I think that the disconnect comes from the fact that there are a lot of other media outlets, national media people, who pick up on these narratives, and then they kind of just run with it, and without really having the larger context of the things that are going on on the ground. So it's like they they take a 30,000-foot view of, you know, things that are going on, you know, and that could be even not even just national media. That could be local media who don't come to the arena. Yeah, so you might right. have, you know, some outlets like the radio stations. They don't really send people down to, you know, cover Wizards games. You know, they're very much focused on the Redskins. Right. Um, you know, you have uh, not not every newspaper is in the market. Or not every newspaper sends um, a beat reporter to cover every Wizards game. So then it becomes like a it becomes like a, a telephone game of information almost. So the people who are there send out information, and then it gets aggregated to somebody else, and then you know, and then Bleacher Report picks it up, and now it's aggregated to somebody else, and then next thing you know, people think that it's all hell breaking loose, but <laughs> really that's not the case. Uh, I'll give a prime example. Um, I had a, a question that I asked John Wall a couple of weeks ago uh, about him, about fans having unrealistic expectations about what professional athletes can do in their free time. Right. Now, John Wall chose to answer it in a way that made it seem like he was being dismissive towards, you know, people who who, who were talking about him going out too much. Right. You know, and nowhere in the question or nowhere in his answer did the word part was the word party ever used. But you saw, I saw half a million people 
right. viewing uh, my my tweet, my question, but Bleacher Report using the word party. So yeah. now everybody talking about John Wall parties too much when that really wasn't the story. And nobody from national, nobody from the Wizards beat reported it as that. So, you know, Candace Buckner didn't talk about John Wall partying. Ben Standick didn't talk about John Wall partying. You know, Chase Hughes didn't talk about John Wall partying. That's because these people were there. They don't, they, they, they didn't have to, you know, take the question out of context, take his answer out of context. It just was what it was. But the people who aren't there, they see the video. And, you know, they turn it into something that is completely not. And I think that goes into a larger uh, problem that the Wizards have as far as their coverage, and especially with it being what I consider to be negatively slanted towards the team, and especially towards John Wall. Yeah, and and that's unfortunate when you think about it, because by all accounts, all the people that I know who, who know John cover him well, they say he's a great guy. And you can tell, man, you can tell he cares about his craft. He cares about the city. He wants to win for D.C., which means a lot, man. But the narrative, the perception of him nationally is just crazy. They got him out here like he's a locker room cancer and that he's lazy and he hates all his teammates, which is sad because, you know, you don't have to look too far in the future to see that this probably doesn't end well for him in D.C. And it's unfortunate, man, because I, I really like John and I, and I think a lot of this stuff is unfair but that's part of the issue, man. There's just not a large-scale platform locally to combat these narratives nationally. You know, the radio station doesn't seemingly know or care. And the TV, there's only one TV station who even talks about the Wizards, but they only talk about the Wizards during the game. You know what I mean? So it's just a really bad situation for Wizards fans and, unfortunately, John Wall. Once again, guys, I'm joined by my guy, Troy Halliburton. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton. He covers the Washington Wizards for truthaboutit.net, also covers the NBA for multiple outlets. So you're going to want to make sure you follow him and check him out for all of his NBA knowledge and insight. But when we have guests on, we like to get into more than just what they're known for. And my guy, Troy, man, you held me down. You held me down when it came to uh, music. Because you put me on to this Velvet album by Jay. I'm not even going to try to pronounce the name. I, I don't know the name of the artist. No disrespect to him. Shout out to him. But that joint rocks. I love it. You know, you told me I should check it out. You suggested it to me, and it delivered. So two questions for you. Number one, what was it about this album that you thought was so great that you suggested it to not only me but to others as well? And number two, what is it? or what music is catching your ear for the fall season? You know, the year is coming to a close. A lot of good music has already come out this year, but what is about to come out or what has recently come out that is catching your ear besides the Velvet album? Okay, cool. So, perfect. That's, that's crazy because I'm glad you – this is how I know you're a professional in the radio business because you a, a word that you couldn't pronounce, you just said, man, I'm not even going to do my man a disservice. <laughs> Yeah, man, it's stylized J-M-S-N, but it's pronounced Jameson. Uh, Jameson is the, is the artist's name. He's a, uh, he's a guy from, um, from Michigan. I've been following along with his career since about 2014. He's an R&B artist. And, man, his, his album, I, I, I hit you specifically because, you know, we kind of connected over that, uh, the Internet album, Hive Mind. Right. And I said, if you like that sound, I knew that you would like uh, Jameson's sound because 
I mean, he he, he has kind of like an old school R and B type of feel to it, but it, you know, it, it's got some electronics and some dance mixed into it. Right. He's got some, you know, a little, little smooth jazz mixed into it. He's got you know uh, ballads on there. He's got he, he, he's got you know songs that make you want to party. Like it's it's it's. I feel like it's kind of like a. a um, a grab bag of everything that all the good things of R&B. It's like kind of all-encompassing. Right. And, I mean, it's just uh, the sound of it. It's just, it's just, I don't know. It's the way, only way I can describe it is, is just, it's just smooth. That's why he named the album Velvet. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, yeah. So I've been, I've been listening to Jameson for a little while now. Uh, I think the first, the first song I ever heard of him, uh, is this song called Addicted by Jameson. It's got a pretty, it's got a pretty dope video. If you ever get lost in a YouTube rabbit hole, people right. should go out there and check that out. But, uh, as far as what else I'm listening to, man, I feel like, uh, the quarter form, as far as uh, the hip-hop and R&B community, this has been a strong quarter as far as uh, music releases. Um, well, the biggest thing or the biggest song of, of Q4 has to be Mo Bamba's Sheck, uh, Mo Bamba by Sheck West. Yeah, like, man. That song, that song right there will elicit a, a riot if it comes on in public. And, you know, it, 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 he's, he's one of those rappers where – you know, it's not really about the lyrical content of what he's saying. It, it, I mean, he's just making, like, just downright just feel-good music. Right, so, right. you know, I had a chance to uh, – uh, a, a few friends of mine throw the Trilectro Music Festival, and uh, it, it was held out at the Meriwether Post Pavilion this year. Right. And I was out there at the, at the at the festival. I was with a couple uh, a couple of the Wizards players were out there, uh, Kelly Oubre, uh, Thomas Bryant, Devin Robinson, Chris Chioza, you know, they were out there and it was just interesting to see, you know, these guys be young kids and, right. you know, just kind of party and mosh out and, you know, Thomas Bryant, 6'10", and he's out there moshing with kids and, you know, they're getting tossed around, but, you know, they <laughs> love it. It's their dream. They get tossed around by, uh, by, by, by NBA players, you know, like that. So, you know, that, 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 I feel like there's a good type of, uh, you know, it's, I wouldn't call it crunk music, but it, it's kind of like, it's like a, it's like a, a grand grandson of the crunk era. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Man, I'm not mad at that. I'm not mad at that at all. You know, when I was a teenager, early 20s, it was all P. Troy, you know, Lil John, you know, for me. So it's cool to see the young boys out there doing their thing, you know. Like you said, it's just a, a descendant of crunk music. It's just the game continues to evolve. Once again, y'all, that's my guy, Troy Halliburton. Make sure you follow him on Twitter. He's at Troy Halliburton, contributor for truthaboutit.net, as well as other outlets covering the NBA. Troy, as always, bro, thank you again for joining me this week on the Quarterly Report. Hey, man, I appreciate it, Armand. You, you put up the bat signal. I'm always going to answer, man. So I... You know, I, I've been I've been dying to get back on here and talk talk about the Velvet album. So I'm, I'm, I was, you know, we could have just talked about the Velvet album for thirty minutes straight, but you know, we had to we had to fit in some basketball too. <laughs> hey man, little by little, it feels like each time you're on, we told more and more music. The next time, the whole segment probably be about music the way the Wizards are playing. <laughs> <laughs> man, let's let, let let's hope not, man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, y'all, that was my guy, Troy Halliburton, breaking down the Wizards. Now, a lot of people are trying to blow up the Wizards or trying to figure out how they can fix the Wizards. And one name who constantly comes up 
is Jimmy Butler. I don't know how realistic it is that Jimmy Butler gets traded to Washington. I don't think Washington has nearly enough or is willing to offer what it would take to get Jimmy Butler. But Jimmy Butler, to me, is fascinating. And one team in particular who is poised to make a huge run and is trying to go all in and getting Jimmy Butler will help them do it. It fascinates me, and that's exactly how I'm going to end the show with our fourth topic this week. Fourth quarter. The Jimmy Butler saga continues in Minneapolis, and I continue to be fascinated by it all. A few weeks ago, I had Ivan Carter on the show, someone who follows and covers that team, and he wasn't surprised at all. He wasn't shocked in the slightest that Tom Thibodeau and the Timberwolves haven't moved on from Jimmy Butler. I maintain that I can't believe that we're still here. Jimmy Butler, without question, is one of the best players in this league. I continue to believe that. However, the Timberwolves have made it perfectly clear that they are giving the keys to that franchise for the future to Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins. Like, that's already been done. They've both been signed to long-term contracts. I'm not here to argue or disagree with that. That's not what this quarter is about. What this quarter is about is market value. Because Jimmy Butler's not resigning in Minneapolis. We know that. And despite how amazing he's played, Jimmy Butler speaking, how well he's played this season, you also have to ask, what are the ramifications of having him play with Carl Anthony Towns and Wiggins, all of them together, because the proof is in the pudding. When all three of them play, the only play, like one of them doesn't play well, and it's never Jimmy. When all three of them play, two of the guys who are the future of your franchise, one of them struggles when they share the court with the other and Jimmy Butler. That's a problem. And it's also fair to ask, has Jimmy, did he break them? Did he break Carl Anthony Towns and Andrew Wiggins? Because it doesn't make sense for them to struggle the way they are. And it also doesn't make sense for them to play as well as they do when either of the young players, the young Timberwolves, are sitting out. You know, Towns struggled, but when Jimmy Butler went down, Towns had his best game of the season. Wiggins played well, relatively speaking, when all three of them were healthy, but they were losing. Andrew Wiggins goes down, Timberwolves put some wins together. And I'm not the biggest Andrew Wiggins fan in the world, but again, it's a moot point. He's already signed long-term, and I don't know if anybody will take on that contract. Jimmy Butler is an amazing basketball player, and now you the reports came out that Houston offered four first-round picks for Jimmy Butler. And all the people that I heard, all the, not all, many of the people that I listened to or read were like, oh, wow, that's such an awful deal. And I had to, you know, take a step back and think, eh, I don't know if it's awful. Because I respect it. I appreciate what the Rockets are doing. You know, it's easy to compare trading four first-round picks for Houston to the last time we saw someone trade four first-round picks, and that was the Brooklyn Nets. But that's a completely different dynamic. I never viewed Brooklyn as a championship contender before getting Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce. 
not to mention Kevin Garnett and Paul Pierce were already declining players. So Brooklyn wasn't as good as Houston is now prior to these trades. And the players that Brooklyn acquired were not nearly as good as the player that Houston would acquire. And it all goes back to a question I posed probably about four or five months ago. And it's really, really simple. How much does one championship mean to you? No matter what your team is, no matter the sport, how much does one championship mean? I, as a Knicks fan, can't even begin to tell you how much it would mean if the New York Knicks were to just win one. Because they've been god-awful my entire adult life. They've never won a championship my entire life. And they've only been in two finals since I've been born. Two. But I completely understand my view on one championship is completely different than that of a Laker fan. You know, the Lakers have won 10 championships in essentially 40 years. It's once every four. So one championship doesn't mean anything to them because they're accustomed to it. If you're a Celtics fan, one championship doesn't mean anything to you. If you're a Patriots fan, how much does one Super Bowl mean? I'm, I'm assuming it doesn't mean nearly as much to a Patriot fan as it does to a Bills fan. You know? That's that's just kind of when you're accustomed to a certain way of living, bong. One of them just doesn't matter. But for Wizards fans, for Knicks fans, for Nets fans, and I'm assuming for Rockets fans, one championship means the world. So when you're a Houston Rockets team who was one hamstring away from making a finals appearance and you have to let go of your best perimeter defenders, you see Jimmy Butler, who's better than Trevor Ariza, who's better than Luke Mbamute, by a large margin, mind you. And his time frame works perfectly with the frame of James Harden and Chris Paul. You're like, boom, four first round picks. We could do that. Now, I'm also not saying that it's an easy decision. Trading four first round picks is tough either way, but I don't necessarily think it's an awful decision. And the people who usually say it's bad are people who don't view Jimmy Butler as a, as a top tier player. So it just depends on how you view Jimmy. I would love to hear the people who don't think Jimmy Butler's very good because I don't understand that logic at all. I don't understand that logic at all. And I also believe that when you have someone like Chris Paul, having three players who, who can score with the basketball becomes less of, a, of an issue. I don't think Jimmy Butler would go to Houston and make waves. I'm not certain. But I don't think that he's the type of guy who would rub rub people the wrong way or rub a team the wrong way with a Chris Paul there. Now, Chris Paul, he's got his history of being uh, a difficult teammate. James Harden, I don't know what you want to say about him, but he's the reigning league MVP. And everyone else on that roster seemingly understands their role. I think it's a gamble worth taking. But it is a gamble. Make no mistake. But that's the whole point. 
You've got so many teams in the league who are just cool collecting checks, and that's fine. Look, they're a business. But when I see a team who absolutely is trying to win, so many people, so many analysts, so many quote-unquote experts are just rolling over for the Warriors. I appreciate what Houston is doing. I appreciate it. I enjoyed watching that conference championship series last year because it was clear Houston was not scared. They were not backing down. They were not going to bow and kiss the ring. It's a lot like when the Jets were decent about eight to ten years ago. And Rex Ryan was there. And he was bold and blustery. He was confident and brash. But he made it perfectly clear. We're not here to kiss the Patriots' ring. They ultimately did not win the Super Bowl, but they went to two AFC Championship games. They beat New England in one of those games, and it was like, yo, they aren't scared. I appreciate that. I appreciate Daryl Morey being, yo, I don't have a window, I or I have a window. I don't have a prolonged window. I've got Chris Paul. I've got James Harden. I saw my team lose last year. And remember what I said earlier in the show about understanding your personnel. The Rockets tried to out-warrior the Warriors last year. They all were shooting threes. They relied upon certain defenders, and they got, and they got close. So what Daryl Morey is doing is like, okay, I'll let Ariza go. I'll let Mbamute go. I don't know what the hell he was thinking with Carmelo, but that's another topic of discussion. But if you get Jimmy Butler, boom, you you cooking with grease now. And not only are you as good or maybe close to as good defensively, but you now have another player who can put the ball on the floor. So if the jump shot's not falling, Trevor Reason, I like Trevor. I love Trevor. But Trevor, you can't expect Trevor to create off the dribble. That's not part of his game. And it'd be foolish to ask him to. But if you're rotating and you know how Houston moves, moves the ball from side to side looking for three, you have Jimmy that if the rotation is strong, too too wild, too reckless, he can create and get to the rim. So if Chris Paul is hurt, you have another guy who can create, which should alleviate some pressure from James Harden. I think... Again, I can't sit here in good faith and tell you trading four first-round picks is a smart idea. But I'm absolutely not going to sit here and say it's dumb. I understand the logic. You know, I live, you know, the way I view trading first-round picks is very simple. And living in D.C., watching the Wizards, covering the Wizards in my past, it's been perfectly clear. I've understood it. Don't trade first-round picks for role players. You know, because you may get a nice feeling for a while, but ultimately numbers regress to the mean. I remember vividly saying trading a first-round pick for Marquise Morris did not make sense. And boy, some of y'all did not feel me on that. But over time, look where we're at right now. Some of the people who were the biggest defenders of trading for Marquise Morris have done a complete 180 in a matter of years. Man, when they traded the first-round pick for Boyan Bogdanovich, I hated it. It's like, why would you do that? So many people, that first 10 games or whatever from Bogdanovich in D.C., he was lights out. 
And everybody was like, yo, this is why he do it. And what happened? Not only did he not perform in the postseason, he then leaves. And Jared Allen is picked with that pick. Trading four first-round picks for role players or marginal talent, I could never sign up for that unless you're a team in a championship run. If you're the Warriors and you feel like you need to, to get something to get a shot in the arm and you trade a first-round pick, okay. When Cleveland traded first-round picks to kind of solidify their roster, boom, I got it because they're competing for championships because championships for Cleveland at the time meant the world for obvious reasons. So I'm cool if you want to trade a first-round pick if you are consistently, completely devoted to a championship run. But look at what Houston is. They are obviously in a championship run, doing whatever they need to get a championship. But not only that, they're also getting one of the best players in the league. So I'm consistent in my beliefs. Trade a first-round pick if you're going for a championship. Trade a first-round pick if you're going to get a special player. Everybody in the league should trade first-round picks if Anthony Davis is available or Giannis or Kawhi, whomever. If you're going to get a special player, boom, make that move. If you're in a championship run and you think that this piece is going to put you over the top, boom, make that move. Houston is both. They are, yes, they are in a championship win-now mode, and they're getting one of the best players in this league. But four first-round picks, oof, that's tough. But if any general manager deserves the benefit of the doubt, it would be Daryl Morey. Because Daryl Morey has shown over the years, not only does he not get played in picks, he also understands ways to acquire picks elsewhere. It's a tough decision, but man, that's what the Warriors have put the entire league in. They have placed the entire league in tough decision-making process, right? Every team who wants or every team who has the desire of winning a championship is faced with tough decisions because the Warriors are not playing. But one thing I am happy at least, happy to see, is that the Houston Rockets have no intention to bowing down, rolling over, or kissing the ring. All right, guys, that's the show this week. I once again want to thank my guest, Troy Halliburton. Again, make sure you follow him on Twitter at Troy Halliburton. Covers the Wizards for truthaboutit.net. Man, the Wizards. Hopefully they can get their act together, man, because this ship is sinking, and it's sinking really, really fast. I want to thank all of you all for listening to the show, writing to the show, emailing me your questions. I appreciate all the interaction. I really think it's dope. And I want to thank every one of you all for listening to the show, listening to episode 79. Again, make sure you email me your thoughts, your questions, or whatever the case may be at quarterlyreport at gmail.com. Make sure you tweet at me at quarterlyshow, Q-U-A-R-T-E-R-L-E-E show. Also, head on over to Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Google Play, wherever you listen to podcasts rate and review the show give me five stars let me let your friends let the world know what you think about the podcast what you like and everything else in between and i will see you back here next week for another episode of the quarterly report <laughs>